Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It was a terrible crime. Of that, there can be little debate. But the way the newspapers hyped it up, you might think of it as the proverbial crime of the century. When, in fact, it wasn't even the worst crime that occurred that decade. Maybe not even that year. That title might possibly go to the axe murders of six members of the Moore family, along with two house guests, in Villisca, Iowa in 1912. Those brutal murders took place just 12 years earlier than the murder of 14-year-old Robert Bobby Franks in 1924. Or just a couple years earlier, on March 31, 1922, in the small Bavarian community of Hinterkaifeck, six members of the Gruber family, along with their housekeeper Maria, were also brutally slain by some still-unknown person. An individual who evidently lived with the family's corpses for some time after they were dead. It seemed like every few years some brutal murder came along that managed to capture the public's imagination. And of course the press was more than happy to sensationalize the crime in order to sell papers. So it came about that in 1924 the kidnapping and murder of Bobby Franks became front page news for a time. But the story of Bobby Franks' murder didn't become so well known because of the gruesome details of the crime though. It was because of the unusual identities of the two main suspects. They weren't the types that most people would consider when imagining violent criminals. They were, in fact, two University of Chicago students named Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Both young men came from prominent, wealthy families. Leopold's father was a successful businessman, while Loeb's was an attorney and vice president of Sears Roebuck & Company. Taking inflation into consideration, the two families' combined wealth would total more than $150 million in today's money. This made the motive for the murder of Bobby Franks seem even more senseless. Leopold and Loeb kidnapped the boy with the intent of holding him for ransom, but instead murdered him in cold blood. The two young men certainly didn't need the money, so why had they done it? The story that emerged would be of two bored, remorseless killers— Two young men with a shared superiority complex who thought they could get away with a perfect crime, simply because they were smarter than the police and everyone else. Two young men who one day decided to kidnap and murder a young boy, simply for the thrill of it. I'm Nate Halen. Talking about murder is way more thrilling than actually doing it, or, I mean, so I hear. And this is The Conspirators. Leopold and Loeb met in the summer of 1920. Both boys grew up in the affluent Jewish neighborhood of Kenwood on Chicago's south side. Leopold was a self-professed child prodigy who began attending the University of Chicago at age 15. He claimed to have spoken his first words at the age of four months. He 
also said he could speak 15 different languages, five of them fluently. He really did make a name for himself as an amateur ornithologist and even managed to publish two papers in the prominent ornithological journal, The Auk. His father was a successful businessman who inherited a shipping company. Then he grew his family fortune by investing in aluminum can and paper box manufacturing. By 1924, the then 19-year-old Nathan Leopold had completed his undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago with Phi Beta Kappa honors and planned on studying law from there. Everyone expected him to pick up the reins of the family business and carry it proudly forward into the future. At 18, Richard Loeb's family also had big plans for him. His father was a vice president of Sears Roebuck and Company who had amassed a fortune of somewhere around $10 million. Like Leopold, he too was enrolled at the University of Chicago by the time he was 14. But unlike his soon-to-be partner in crime, Loeb did not excel at university. His grades were poor, and he had a difficult time adjusting to the fact that all his classmates were older than he was. By the end of his sophomore year, he transferred to the University of Michigan, where he continued to struggle. He spent much of his time playing cards and reading pulp detective novels instead of attending class. He also developed a pretty serious drinking problem during this period. Despite his troubles, at age 17, Loeb managed to become the youngest graduate from the University of Michigan, and by 1924, he was back in Chicago taking graduate courses in history. It was after Loeb's return to Chicago that the two young men renewed their friendship. They had known each other casually growing up, but it wasn't until the 1920s that their friendship really blossomed. On the surface, it seemed like the two of them had little in common. Loeb was everything Leopold was not. He was incredibly good-looking, tall, slender, and well-built. He dressed well, and he had an easygoing charm about him. He was the type of individual who would instantly become the center of attention of any room he was in. Nathan Leopold, on the other hand, was the polar opposite. He was dour and egotistical. He liked to brag about his own intelligence and was more than willing to let you know that he was the smartest man in any room. He was the sort of guy who had an opinion on everything. He read Friedrich Nietzsche, and was especially taken with the German philosopher's concept of the Übermensch, the so-called Superman, who possessed a superior intellect and abilities far beyond mere common folk. Leopold was also secretly in love with Richard Loeb, who had all the qualities he so desired in himself. But Loeb had a self-destructive side. He was always looking for some new way to push things to the edge and to find some new thrill in his life. He started off committing petty crimes and vandalism, and he was always eager to find ways to up the stakes. It pleased him to no end that he found a kindred spirit in Leopold, who was more than happy to accompany him on his escapades. On November 10, 1923, the two men made a six-hour road trip from Chicago to the University of Michigan to burglarize Loeb's former fraternity, Zeta Beta Tau. But the haul they got was disappointing. They only managed to steal about $80 in loose change, some watches, a couple of pen knives, and a typewriter. It was a lot of work for very little reward. On top of all that, the two friends bickered the entire time. Leopold was angry because he felt the friendship had become too one-sided. He always followed Richard's lead no matter what he wanted to do. Yet Richard Loeb wouldn't commit to the one thing Nathan Leopold really wanted, which was for the two men to become lovers. But Richard eventually managed to soothe Nathan's anger the way he always did. 
by coyly suggesting the two of them might one day become something more. If only they stuck together. They had already spent the past few months committing several burglaries together. They had even set a few small fires, but none of these petty crimes had caused enough of a stir to even make the papers. But this was something Loeb wanted to correct. He had an idea to commit the ultimate crime. Something so big and splashy it would dominate Chicago's newspaper headlines for months on end. That was when Loeb made his ultimate proposal to his friend Leopold. What if the two of them conspired to kidnap a child? It would be a daring crime. That was a given. Kidnapping a child would be difficult enough on its own, but safely obtaining the ransom. Now there was a real thrill to be had. But Loeb was convinced that with their superior intellects, the two of them could pull it off and never get caught. Leopold loved the idea. Not only because it fit firmly into his philosophy of the Superman, but because once again Loeb suggested that if they pull it off, the two of them might celebrate by becoming lovers. Leopold was convinced that he was one of Nietzsche's supermen, someone who stood above any sort of laws or the sort of moral code most men live by. Such a person could create their own morality, and could do whatever such a superior being decided to do was right, just as long as it brought him pleasure, even murder. The two men spent that winter discussing just how they would accomplish such an audacious crime. They finally came up with a plan they thought was foolproof. They would direct their victim's father to board the train that traveled south of Chicago. Then, at an appointed time, they would direct the man to throw a packet containing the ransom money from the train along the elevated tracks west of Lake Michigan. Leopold and Loeb would be waiting below the tracks in a getaway car. And as soon as the packet of money hit the ground, they'd scoop it up and drive away. On May 21, 1924, Leopold and Loeb rented a car under the name Morton D. Ballard and spent the afternoon driving around the south side of Chicago looking for a suitable victim. They spent two fruitless hours driving around Kenwood and were getting frustrated. They were on the verge of calling it a night, but after Leopold steered the car north along Ellis Avenue, Loeb, who was sitting in the back seat, spotted his cousin Bobby Franks walking south on the opposite side of the street. Loeb knew from his family connection that Bobby's father was a wealthy businessman who had more than enough money to pay the ransom. He tapped Leopold on the shoulder and pointed Bobby out. Leopold made a U-turn to get to the other side of the street. He slowly pulled the car up alongside Bobby. Loeb called to the boy. Bobby looked over and saw his cousin Richard leaning out the car window. He told Bobby to come over and they'd give him a ride. Bobby shook his head because he was only two blocks from home. Come on in the car, Loeb said. I want to talk to you about the tennis racket you had yesterday. I want to get one for my brother. He popped open the car door and gestured him to come over. Something obviously didn't feel right to Bobby based on how he hesitated. Nonetheless, he did get close enough to the car that Loeb could have reached out and snatched him right there off the streets if he wanted to. But Loeb didn't have to. He was a natural-born charmer, and people just had a tendency to want to gravitate toward him. Bobby was no exception. Almost as if he didn't realize he was doing it, Bobby first stepped up on the car's running board, then he slipped into the front seat next to Leopold. Bobby looked uncomfortable. Loeb tried to set the boy's mind at ease. You know Leopold, don't you? Bobby shook his head. He didn't know this other man. You don't mind us driving you around the block, Loeb asked. Bobby told him he didn't mind, and Leopold began driving. 
Bobby began to chat with Loeb while the man fished around in the back seat for the chisel he'd brought with him. They had taped up the handle to make it easier to use that end as a bludgeon. Leopold turned the car left on 50th Street. Bobby turned his head around to see where they were going. At that moment, Leopold reached over the seat and grabbed Bobby from behind, covering the boy's mouth with one hand to muffle his screams. With his other hand, he smashed the blunt end of the chisel down hard on the back of Bobby's skull. He kept beating the boy in the head, expecting to pass out instantly like the detectives in the pulp novels he read. Only Bobby stayed conscious far longer than expected. Bobby fought and twisted around in his seat trying to protect himself, but Loeb kept battering him with the chisel's handle. The fourth blow split open a huge gash in the boy's forehead. Blood sprayed everywhere, on the car seat, the floor, and on Leopold's trousers. This was way more difficult than they made it out to be in the detective novels. Loeb grabbed Bobby with both hands and hauled him over the passenger seat into the back of the car with him. He shoved the boy down onto the floorboards by his feet. Then he stuffed a rag down his cousin's throat and tore off a piece of adhesive tape and used it to seal the boy's mouth shut. Finally, all the boy's crying and carrying on had ceased. Loeb finally felt confident enough to relax his grip, and Bobby lay still by his feet. So far, none of this had gone down as the perfect crime that Leopold and Loeb had expected, and it was only going to get worse from there. They headed for the wetlands near Lake Michigan. They even stopped along the way for hot dogs and root beer, with Bobby's corpse still in the car. They drove Bobby's remains out to a remote culvert several miles south of Chicago. But while they were dragging Bobby's body out of the car, a pair of eyeglasses fell out of Leopold's jacket onto the muddy ground, and neither of the men noticed. They dragged the body out near a drainage pipe. Then they poured acid over the boy's face and genitals to hide his identity. They then left Bobby's remains and drove back to the city. Along the way, Leopold dropped their ransom note into a mailbox. It arrived at the Frank house the following morning around 8 a.m. It would be another day before a passerby discovered Bobby Frank's body and notified the police. Within two days, Leopold and Loeb's entire ransom scheme had fallen apart. At first, the police only had a handful of clues to go on. Someone had given them a tip about a gray sedan that had been seen idling near the location where Bobby Franks was last seen. There was also the ransom note, which didn't offer much that might lead to the killer or killers. Then there were the distinctive-looking pair of horn-rimmed glasses that had been found on the muddy ground near the body. At first, it was assumed the glasses were Bobby's. They were even placed on the boy's body at the funeral home. But when his relatives arrived to identify the corpse, they all said the glasses weren't his. The prescription itself wasn't out of the ordinary, so that was no help. What was unusual was that these particular frames had a specific type of hinge that turned out to be quite rare for the area. Only three pairs of eyeglasses with that type of hinge had been sold in the Chicago area. One of the three pairs belonged to a man who had been traveling for weeks. Another belonged to a woman, so the police instantly ruled her out as a suspect. The third was traced back to 19-year-old college student Nathan Leopold. At first, Leopold was not considered a likely suspect either. He was brought in for questioning, but because Leopold came from such a wealthy and respected family, police were convinced early on the young man couldn't have anything to do with such a heinous crime. It just didn't make sense that a young man whose family worth was in the millions of dollars would bother to kidnap a child. The state's attorney was a 45-year-old man named Robert Crow. He had been elected on a campaign promise to wipe out crime and corruption in Chicago which, if you know much about Chicago's history, was a seemingly impossible task. Crow spent the afternoon and well into the evening interrogating Nathan Leopold. 
When Crow showed Leopold the glasses, the young man shrugged them off. He told Crow he was an avid bird watcher and was considered an expert in the field who had published several articles on the subject. He said he likely dropped the glasses while out on one of his bird watching expeditions. He told Crow he knew nothing of his cousin Bobby's murder, and he'd spent the entire evening out driving around town in his red Willie's night with his pal Richard Loeb. He said that he and Richard had spent the night drinking, then picked up a couple of girls and tried fooling around with them a bit. But the girls they picked up refused to have sex with them, so they dropped them off. Then the young man decided to call it a night and head home. None of the story set right with Crow, and he didn't like Leopold at all. The young man was arrogant and abrasive. While he was interrogating Leopold, he sent some police to search the young man's bedroom and study. There, the officers turned up a love letter to Richard Loeb that strongly suggested the two men were more than friends. But that just raised another question. If the two men were homosexuals, as the letter implied, then why were they spending their evening chasing girls? Crow knew he needed to bring Richard Loeb in for questioning as well. It only took a few days of interrogation before Leopold and Loeb finally broke down and confessed to what they had done. In truth, it wasn't much of a breakdown. In fact, the young men seemed downright proud of their crimes. It turned out the two most helpful witnesses the police had in explaining every detail of the crime turned out to be Leopold and Loeb themselves. They led investigators to the hardware store where they bought the murder weapon. Then they led them to the exact location where they picked Bobby Franks up, and then to the spot where they dumped the body. Crow was ecstatic. This was as open and shut a murder case as he could have hoped for. He told the press that Leopold and Loeb were cold-blooded murderers and that he would be seeking the death penalty. For months after, the case of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were front-page headlines in every newspaper in Chicago. It became national and international news as well. After all, these were two young men from a wealthy background conspiring to kidnap and murder a young boy. And just like during their interrogation, Leopold and Loeb did everything they could to keep the story alive. They often spent time smoking cigarettes and chatting openly with reporters about the crime. The one thing reporters wanted to know most of all is why had they done it. It couldn't have been for the money. The young men were loaded. Leopold and Loeb were happy to tell reporters they did it for the thrill of it all. It's clear that Leopold and Loeb's need to prove to the world that they were smarter than anyone else far outweighed their sense of self-preservation. Perhaps the only truly smart thing Leopold and Loeb did during their incarceration was to hire the country's most preeminent defense attorney, Clarence Darrow. By that point in his career, the then 67-year-old Darrow had made a name for himself as the so-called attorney for the damned. The Leopold and Loeb case was a year before Darrow would go on to argue for the defense in the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial. That would be the most famous case of Darrow's career, in which he defended a Tennessee high school teacher for teaching the theory of evolution. But even before Scopes, Darrow was a fierce opponent of the death penalty and had successfully argued to save several clients from the gallows. Throughout his career, Darrow defended at least 60 capital punishment cases. After losing his very first such case, he vowed to never lose another. This is also what led him to defend Leopold and Loeb. Darrow was a firm believer that there was no such thing as free will, and that human beings' actions were determined by their upbringing. Thus, according to Darrow's philosophy, since there was no free will, he was also convinced that capital punishment was an abomination that needed to be eradicated. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It was because of the huge amount of press surrounding the case that Darrow decided to make his ultimate statement against capital punishment by defending Leopold and Loeb. But even before Darrow first showed up to interview his new clients, Crow had begun taking steps to shore up his prosecution. He arranged for Chicago's top alienists, an early term for psychiatrists, to examine Leopold and Loeb and assess their sanity. Crow was convinced Darrow's only possible line of defense would be to attempt to plead them not guilty by reason of insanity. But the alienists concluded the young men were perfectly sane and fully understood the enormity of their crimes. On June 11th, Darrow appeared before the court with his clients and entered a not-guilty plea. Next, he assembled his own team of psychiatric experts, along with several renowned criminologists. Darrow's team of experts subjected Leopold and Loeb to a rigorous examination, derived from the most cutting-edge science of the era. This included studying their bodily functions, their intelligence, and their family histories as well. There were even phrenologists consulted to examine the structures of Leopold and Loeb's skulls to help explain their brain function. At the same time all this was going on, many commentators in the press were taking this opportunity to point the finger of blame at the very morality of modern society. A lot of editorials back then were claiming the real reason these two promising young men had strayed so far off the moral path was because of the wild and reckless state of the Roaring Twenties. It was all the partying and drinking and fast living that was rampant in America's youth. There were ministers who took this opportunity to claim America was over-educating its youth and that society should retreat from all that science stuff and look to the Bible for answers. Darrow was also concerned about the public perception of his clients. He sent pollsters into the streets of Chicago to gauge public opinion about Leopold and Loeb, but much to his chagrin, 60% of those interviewed said the young men should hang for what they did. On July 21st, two months after the murder of Bobby Franks, Darrow led his clients into the courtroom and made a shocking announcement. He was going to change their pleas to guilty. This threw both the courtroom and the entire case into a frenzy. Crow was among those completely caught off guard. He had been fully prepared to mount a major offense against the insanity defense he'd been expecting. But with a guilty plea, this meant the case would no longer be heard by a jury and would instead go straight to a judge to determine whether the defendants should face the death penalty or not. Darrow had a radical legal plan, something that had never been attempted before. He planned on introducing evidence about Leopold and Loeb's backgrounds and their mental states in order to plead for their lives. In essence, he wanted to go before the judge and have his clients admit that, yes, they had committed the murder, but they were then going to explain that there were mitigating circumstances that drove them to do it. Crow thought this was complete nonsense and immediately tried to put a stop to it. The sentencing hearing began two days later on July 23rd. It was standing room only in the packed and overheated courtroom. Many of those people were reporters anxious to hear what Darrow planned to say next. Even though this wasn't a typical trial, both Darrow and Crow were allowed to present evidence regarding the defendant's guilt. Crow called more than 80 witnesses, and by the time he was finished, he had left no doubt that Leopold and Loeb had murdered Bobby Franks in cold blood. Although Darrow was given the opportunity to cross-examine these witnesses, he spent the entire time sitting quietly and allowing the prosecutor to build his case. Crow spent his time hammering home the heinous nature of the crime, 
as well as how remorseless Leopold and Loeb were about what they had done. At one point, the prosecutor described it as the most cruel, cowardly, dastardly murder ever committed in the annals of American jurisprudence. By the time he rested, he angrily demanded the death penalty. Through it all, Leopold and Loeb didn't much help their public image. They spent most of the trial sitting behind their attorney snickering and acting like a couple of spoiled brats. In fact, they often appear to gleefully revel in the graphic descriptions of what they had done. On July 30th, Clarence Darrow was finally allowed to mount his defense. It was his intention, he said, at the start, to show that his clients suffered from a mental disease that rendered them unable to tell right from wrong. One expert witness Darrow brought to the witness stand testified that the young men suffered from dysfunctional endocrine glands, which caused them to willfully disregard the law. Although most of the newspapers up till that point had painted Leopold as the true mastermind behind the murder, Darrow and his team of experts flipped the script and pointed toward Loeb being the true ringleader, who had caused young Leopold to go astray. He tried showing that a powerful master and slave relationship existed between the two men, all with an underpinning of illicit sex beneath it. Expert witnesses tried to explain that the boy's wealthy upbringing had resulted in stunted emotional growth in the two young men. Both of them had been largely raised by governesses, and in fact Nathan Leopold, it was claimed, had been sexually abused by his governess when he was 12 years old. This was all an extremely brazen move on Darrow's part trying to paint these two young men, who were raised on a life of luxury, as the real victims of the crime. Darrow began finishing his presentation on Friday, August 22nd with what would end up being a three-day summation. Much of his final summation was a rambling account of all the many reasons Leopold and Loeb were the real victims here, and why justice demanded that their lives be spared. He described before the court just how brilliant these young men were, and how much they could still contribute to society. And that's why he claimed they deserved a second chance for the very betterment of society as a whole. By the time he was finished, Darrow managed to not only bring the judge to tears, but Richard Loeb as well. Crow did his best to fight back. He even tried to insinuate that there was a sexual motivation to the murder of Bobby Franks, claiming at one point that Leopold and Loeb may have molested the boy before his death. But this was considered so scandalous that the judge had all the women removed from the courtroom so their delicate ears wouldn't have to hear such salacious details. As the judge deliberated, it was becoming evident which way public opinion was moving. Chicago bookies were now giving three-to-one odds against a death sentence. Finally, on September 10th, the court reconvened and Judge Caverly gave his final judgment. He told Darrow that while he found all his scientific evidence interesting... It didn't sway him in his ultimate decision since his clients had bled guilty, after all. Nonetheless, the judge decided that in this particular case, the death penalty was not warranted, and instead decided that Leopold and Loeb would be much better suited for a prison sentence. Both Leopold and Loeb were sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Bobby Franks, plus an additional 99 years for the kidnapping. This verdict caused a lot of public outrage from people who claimed the defendants had used their wealth to buy their way out of a death sentence. Clarence Darrow immediately turned to the press and touted his victory and stated how his next step would be to launch a campaign to end capital punishment in Illinois. As Leopold and Loeb left the courtroom, they shook Darrow's hand. That evening, they celebrated in their cells over steaks smothered in onions and chocolate eclairs for dessert. It would be the last hurrah for the two men, though. In 1936, in Statesville Prison, an inmate named James Day stabbed Richard Loeb to death in the shower room. Loeb was 30 years old at the time.
Most stories claim Loeb had made an unwanted sexual advance on Day. Nathan Leopold, on the other hand, would go on to see freedom again in his lifetime. He was considered a model inmate who helped reorganize the prison library and even worked to educate his fellow inmates. He was granted parole in 1958. Upon his release, many reporters attempted to get an exclusive interview with him, but he declined them all. Leopold only made a brief public statement about wanting to lead a humble and quiet life. After his release, Leopold moved to Puerto Rico, where he attended school at the University of Puerto Rico, to earn a degree in social work. He also spent a great deal of his time studying the island's indigenous birds. He went on to marry the widow of a Baltimore physician. Throughout the 1960s, Nathan Leopold was allowed to return to Chicago on several occasions. During those visits, he got to tour his old neighborhood and lay flowers on the graves of his parents and two brothers. On August 29, 1971, Leopold died of a heart attack in Puerto Rico at age 66. Up until that point, he had managed to become the sole survivor of the so-called crime of the century. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Andrew, Clifton, James, Creative Rehash, Khalid, and Rob. You're all amazing, and I deeply appreciate your support. Just a reminder, the patrons to the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. Another way you can help support the show and get yourself some really fun items is to head over to our merchandise store where you can find all sorts of conspirators t-shirts, phone cases, pillows, and much, much more. Another great way you can help support the show is to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review the show. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms and boost us in their rankings. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and most of the other places where you get your podcasts. You can also listen to our entire back catalog of shows on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and our Facebook page. Feel free to drop us a line at any one of these places, or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. But before we go, I wanted to tell you about another podcast that fans of The Conspirators are going to love. Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan tells the story of strange happenings and unexplained events. From disappearances and hauntings to UFOs and encounters with Bigfoot, each episode explores a topic that will often lead to more questions and answers. And that's the fun of it. The Strange and Unexplained is a single-host storytelling-style podcast, much like The Conspirators. The podcast is hosted by Tony Award-winning actress and writer Daisy Egan. Daisy is a true crime enthusiast and a paranormal skeptic. Backed by a team of researchers, Daisy brings her unique brand of humor, grit, snark, and feminism to each episode. So if you like podcasts like The Conspirators, I recommend you check out Strange and Unexplained and find it wherever you get your podcasts.